afternoon. Thanks very much for joining us on this private briefing dealing with the Thai Regulatory and Tax Update 2021. I'll just make some general introductions. First, introduce myself. I'm Zach Lucas, if you um, haven't encountered me before. Partner with McCarthy Denning, which is a law firm in the City of London. Uh, I have over 20 years uh, legal practice experience dealing with all areas of international private client law. Uh, more laterally dealing with the regulatory environment that's emerging with high net worth individuals, uh, particularly dealing with things like the OECD rules, um, be it with the, the common reporting standard or the managing disclosure rules, stuff, some of the stuff that we'll be discussing uh, later on in this private briefing. We're joined today by Kun uh, Chinapath Sitapath from One Law Office uh, based in Bangkok. Now, Chinapath has over 30 years professional experience and deals with a range of issues and a range of taxes. Uh, a lot of commercial taxes, mergers and acquisition related, as well as families and family businesses. Uh, Chinapath uh, you know, sits on a number of boards and a number of you know, institutions. Most notably, uh, he sits on the uh, subtax committee for the Thai uh, Chamber of Commerce, Board of Trade of Thailand, and is a tax conciliator of the Central Tax Court and sits on a number of audit committees for listed companies. I'm very grateful to be joined by uh, Chinapat today. Thanks, Seth. John Shoemaker uh, is with uh, Butler Snow. Now, John is, is, is a regular with some of my briefings. Uh, John is a US tax and uh, estates attorney with over 30 years experience. Uh, now, John uh, obviously uh, advises on areas to deal with US federal income, gift and state taxes and deals quite uh, extensively with high net worth individuals with US connections. So if I have US issues, I would only use John. Happy to be joined also by Joe Tang, our head of sales, Amicor Group. Uh, Joe has uh, over 20 years professional experience, trust company service provider market, and deals quite extensively with high net worth families and individuals, particularly dealing with their structures uh, and uh, the, the way in which they put together their trusts and company uh, undertakings. Um, Joe also has extensive experience with the application of regulatory law to some of these uh, overseas structures and has uh, obviously had a lot of experience in remediation of these structures as well. And then finally, happy to be joined by Roger Chi, our Chief Executive Officer of 1291 Group in Asia. Uh, Roger Deal has had extensive experience with family offices in both Asia as well as the Middle East, comes from a venture capital background and deals quite heavily with high net worth individuals, dealing with uh, multiple different ways in which they can structure, uh, whether for succession, for tax optimization, and also deals quite extensively with insurance-based solutions for high net worth individuals and their families. So, very grateful to be joined by the uh, panel today. I'll run through the agenda. So obviously we'll, we'll go through a number of tiers. The first that we'll start off with on this briefing is the international uh, uh, financial surveillance and what's developing internationally and especially how that's starting to impact domestically into Thailand, both you know, going into next year and then obviously going forward in time. And so the areas, the principal areas that we'll be looking at within this are the common reporting standard, the economic substance rules and the beneficial ownership register rules. Now, if you're new to this, it'll become obvious, I'll do it in a very sort of gentle way as to what these rules 
do, but they're all bound into this whole issue of international financial surveillance of high net worth individuals and their families. Well, then look at the US side, because obviously with uh, Thailand and the US, there's quite close ties, and there's also a lot of intimates with families. And so uh, I've invited, obviously, John is here to help us with the US financial surveillance aspects of what's going on there. And we'll run through a number of the initiatives that John will update. We'll then look, in light of COVID-19, we'll then look at the tight tax policy update. And what we're looking at particularly here is things that are uh, that may develop in the future as a result of COVID-19, as well as looking at some of the policy agenda items that are likely to occur because of recent events involving high net worth individuals. So Consumer Pet will deal with that going forward. And then finally, we'll end with a, a case study. And in this, uh, we'll run about five examples of typical structures that high net worth Thai uh, families and individuals would typically have. And then we'll run through as a sort of uh, summary of all of this, um, pulling it all into one place. And each of us will take turns to discuss what the impact of this you know, international financial surveillance, the US side and the policy changes that might likely happen in Thailand will have as against typical structures. And as I say, we'll go through a, a number of them just to illustrate how the rules work in practice uh, and not just looking at it from an academic standpoint. Now, uh, the slides as well as a, uh, a copy of the recording will be made available after the, um, the webinar is completed. Um, I would just say, however, just as an admonition that what we talk about today is, is a general discussion. It's not designed to be legal advice. It shouldn't be relied on for that purpose. And that, that admonition is included in any written materials that you will receive. So this is practitioners having a chat around how the international environment is developing when it comes to financial surveillance that is, uh, is starting to manifest in, a, in an even more aggressive way than we've seen previously. Okay, so I'll run through just uh, setting the scene and, and giving us an update on you know, how, what we should take into consideration going forward when we're considering how the, uh, the international community is reacting, particularly when it comes to the high net worth individual segment. Obviously, we're still in the, the midst of the pandemic and in some jurisdictions, it's, you know, the, the vaccination rates are still very, very low. Now, I think we can all agree that the, the economic impact of this is gonna be much larger. It's probably the largest thing that we would have seen in our generations, anybody for this matter watching this private briefing. So this is gonna be a serious um, issue because obviously treasuries and you know uh, taxing authorities are all running out of money in one way or another. So what we end up with is an environment in which there is restricted policy choices. Austerity is not going to be a choice, certainly not for Europe, certainly not for, for the globe because we're already in austerity. So to push it even further would tip companies, uh, countries over into economic chaos. What we're looking at particularly though is the tax policy agenda as it will develop with respect to the high net worth segment. And so I think it's important to understand the context and what's starting to build around the high net worth individual segment. There are a number of policy reports um, that, that are taken into consideration by uh, some of the legislatures around the world, particularly by the European Union, for instance. And the one on the left is the tax justice report at the end of 2020. And that was endorsed by the UN uh, sort of financial integrity report back in February of this year. What do these reports say? And there are many like them, okay? What it shows effectively is uh, a, sort of, a sort of rampant tax avoidance by individuals and corporates. Now, 
these reports are freely available on the internet. You can have a read of the methodology. You may not agree with how they come to these figures, but these are the figures that actually go to policymakers and are taken quite seriously. So from a high net worth standpoint, 182 billion annually in tax evasion is what they're estimating, which is an extraordinary figure and extraordinary in the context of how much has been put into uh, trying to um, sort of uh, reduce the amount of tax avoidance that occurs internationally. But that's the figure that they put. They also highlight the jurisdictions, uh, the top 15 jurisdictions that cause this amount of tax loss. Um, coming in at number one is the Cayman Islands and then the UK, Netherlands, Luxembourg, etc. But what you'll notice is a lot of the prominent offshore financial centers are mentioned. So Jersey is included, Singapore is included, the BVI is included, as well as obviously the Cayman Islands. And again, you may disagree with the, with the, the content of these figures, but policymakers, and they are quoted by policymakers, European parliamentarians do quote these figures going forward, and this will make a difference. Now, in the midst of all of this, whilst we have COVID-19 going on, we have reports coming out that there is a rampant international tax avoidance by individuals. We have a constant stream of data leaks, kicking off with the Panama Papers. And later on, we had, sorry, the Paradise Papers, then the Bahamas leaks. And now, recently, we have the Pandora Papers. So. It gives an, a sort of image of um, high net worth individuals whenever they're engaging internationally. The only thing that can be going on is something bad. And that's a tabloid approach, okay? It's not justified necessarily by court proceedings or by anything else. It's a tabloid approach. And it's something that we are um, seeing from the private client perspective on a continuous basis now. The Pandora, no doubt, no doubt there'll be further data leaks and so-called exposes going forward. I think the most important aspect about these data leaks is not so much as you know, the posturing on the theft of data and the, the privacy implications, but just the long-term policy implications of these data leaks going forward. And I think that's probably the, one of the most important aspects of this. So here we are, what can be the international community's response to you know, the, the perceived high net worth avoidance as well as all of these data exposés? So the OECD, which is the international body that sets some of the standards on tax compliance, has put together this, um, this guide on engaging with high net worth. And it sets out a menu of options that tax authorities may wish to pursue when engaging with their domestic high net worth in individual community. So in other words, a Thai tax authority, like any other tax authority in the world, may look and consider the guidance contained in this document. And so what do they have? Well, they look at, in a very sort of economic kind of way, they look at the demand for avoidance schemes and how to counter that with high net worth individual units, which is tax officials that are specifically allocated to high net worth families as their liaison with the tax office. Unexplained wealth orders, U, uh, WOs. They also look at um, the supply side, so mandatory disclosure, so they look at what they call enablers of tax avoidance, accountants, lawyers, private bankers. And they look at how to counter this with um, putting disclosure requirements or naming and shaming professionals. And then on the product side, if there's a product-based approach, they look at general anti-avoidance rules or retroactive laws that will effectively um, invalidate uh, an approach that was legal at the time. 
So this document contains a long list of, um, of uh, potential approaches that tax authorities may wish to undertake uh, when they, they seek to recoup or try and increase the tax take from their high net worth individual community or seek to uh, sort of remediate and make uh, more compliance. Now, for our purposes for today, what's the immediate outcome of this document and what do we think is likely to emerge internationally? And then extrapolating that down to what will likely unfold in Thailand going forward. So I think it's quite it's fair to say, given how um, the, the sort of background to this, that compliance audits will be a feature going into the post-COVID environment. I think everyone can accept that. And if I look at some of the statistics on this, and I'll just scroll forward. We've got two statistics that are interesting. So first is the financial crime, the sort of tax academy for tax and financial crime investigation. We see the numbers of audit inspectors that are attending this course or this, these sorts of trainings going up continuously over the years, even into 2020, the, the, the numbers were still climbing. And then we look at the amount of countries that are sending um, the sort of tax investigators into these courses are also rising. Now, this is not the only basis on which capacity building can occur. Okay, so there are other ways in which local tax officials and local tax officers can build their capacity to uh, begin the audit assessments of high net worth clients. But what it shows is an, it's a trend. That's a lot of resource being put into training individuals to begin the process of tax investigations. And so we should take notice of that, particularly in the context of you know, what would likely be the case going forward from a tax um, standpoint, what's the engagement strategy. Of course, the, you know, it's quite topical to talk about tax reforms, increasing tax rate, wealth taxes is something that we're seeing emerging in South America. It's something that has been discussed in Europe. Windfall taxes, no doubt, will be discussed going forward, but there will be necessarily some way in which um, uh, countries will have to recoup all of the, the resources that they're pouring into keeping their economies going whilst the pandemic continues. Now, for today's purposes, the one aspect of all of this which is consistent is enhancing financial surveillance of high net worth clients and their families and their international structures. That's almost the bedrock for all of this to work. And this is an approach that we suspect um, tax authorities around the world will adopt if they're not already doing it. And this has implications, obviously, for Thailand and for the discussions that we have uh, during the course of this briefing. So what is the, the principal financial surveillance um, devices? What's the, the approach? Well, there are basically three methodologies to this that we've seen in recent past. There is the automatic exchange of information between taxing authorities. And this is something that, uh, from a Thailand perspective, is fairly alien and unknown, but it's something that, as we'll discuss, is coming in next year if the timeline is kept, which is the automatic habitual uh, exchange of information with respect to taxpayers and their accounts um, for year after year without limit. Spontaneous exchange is also uh, something that we're seeing developing now. Spontaneous exchange is where a tax authority in one jurisdiction simply exchanges information without request to another uh, jurisdiction because there is a link and usually it's because there is a taxpayer or, an, or a resident in that jurisdiction. This is another area that's developing. And then finally, this one, which is the public accessibility of information. I think this is going to be the one that primarily is going to be the, the sort of uh, area of greatest development going into the, uh, the end of this year and into 22. It's public access to registers that are freely available online. And it deals with 
beneficial ownership of, let's say, companies, trusts, land, or, um, or other types of asset classes. And I think this is going to be the area that is going to be the, the, the sort of battleground going forward. Now, from a Thai perspective, if we try and bring this stuff from an international standpoint and start looking at how this is impacting the Thai high net worth community, I will look at the common reporting standard and I'll explain it in a, a sort of user-friendly way. So for attendees that are not um, familiar with how these mechanisms work, this is a, a, a very good primer. For those of you who are professionals who have been dealing with this for years, forgive me, it's going to be um, a little bit of a recap for you. I'll talk about the economic substance rules and how they apply to the principal offshore financial centers because it does have an exchange of information provision embedded into the rules. And then we will look at some of these registers, particularly the jurisdictions that are likely to be implementing publicly available registers going forward. So the common reporting standard. So Thailand is due to adopt this. They, they made a commitment that they would exchange information uh, no later than the 2023, so the year after next. That means that Thailand has to domestically implement the common reporting standard by next year. So January 1st, uh, uh, 2022, we have to have the CRS in effect in Thailand. There's a bunch of treaties in the background that helps all of this wire together internationally. The Mutual Assistance Convention has been signed by Thailand, but not yet ratified. Thailand is currently on an EU grey list. In other words, it needs to ratify this convention if it doesn't accelerate itself onto a blacklist or a formal sort of um, list. So there is some push factor involved in this from the European Union that Thailand adopts these uh, common reporting standard rules going forward. So working on the assumption that we have um, Thailand adopting as it should January 1st next year, I'll do an overview of how the world, the rules actually work. So how does the reporting mechanism uh, practically work? And then I will look at sorry, some of the reportable accounts or what financial accounts will be captured by the rules. So looking at the reporting mechanism. Now on this diagram, on the left-hand side, we have uh, financial institutions in Singapore and then we have the Singapore Tax Authority. And on the right-hand side, we have financial institutions based in Thailand with the Thai Tax Authority. And this is how the mechanism works. We have a resident, a tax resident in Thailand. That resident has an account in Singapore with one of these financial institutions. Now, the rule will work this way. Those financial institutions in Singapore will have to identify their Thai tax resident clients. When they've identified those type that's found the clients, they will then report them to the Inland Revenue Authority of Singapore. The Inland Revenue, of Singapore, Inland Revenue uh, Authority of Singapore will then exchange details of the accounts and the individual to their Thai tax counterparts in September 2023. So the information about that particular tax resident, the account, the value as at 31st of December 2022 will all be exchanged as at uh, September 2023. That's a simple mechanism and it will happen every single year thereafter as long as the Thai tax resident individual maintains an account in Singapore. 
and there is an exchange relationship with Thailand. The mechanism is reciprocal. So if we have in reverse an individual that's tax resident in Singapore holding accounts in Thailand, then the Thai tax, uh, that Thai financial institution will report to the Thai tax authority. The Thai tax authority will then report out to Singapore. So it's a reciprocal mechanism and it goes on as long as you have the account, this will continue as a circle uh, forever after automatically. Now, insofar as the, the countries involved, I think it's important to understand that the Thai tax authority will gain access under this mechanism to a whole range of jurisdiction financial institution data. So all of the principal uh, offshore financial centers that are, they're already part of this mechanism will all be reporting in. You'll notice the US is not mentioned here. John will discuss specifically how the US and Thailand will configure under this um, reporting mechanism. But you'll see, obviously, there are a whole range of jurisdictions. I've underlined them in red that are captured by this. And these, so if you have financial accounts in any of these jurisdictions, this is where they will pour into the Thai tax authority, the data with respect to your financial account. Obviously, this is not the entire world. And you see at the bottom of the list, jurisdictions that are currently making their way through onto the list. Okay, so just look at, canter through some of the accounts that are captured by this. And I'll look at, obviously bank accounts will be captured. Portfolio accounts, and they're really looking at uh, sort of broker accounts. Hedge fund accounts, so looking at funds. And then insurance and corporate accounts. And then finally trust accounts. And I'll explain how this all works. But these are the typical canter through of asset types or financial account types that you would expect. Uh, to be captured. So very simplistically, I have an individual in Thailand, tax resident in Thailand, that holds a bank account in Singapore. Annually, going forward, uh, that bank in Singapore will report to the Singapore Tax Authority the details of that account, and they will be exchanged across to the Thai Tax Authority. And likewise, if it were a portfolio account or a custodial account, broker account, again, this one in the United Arab Emirates, in Dubai, let's say, Again, the same mechanism is applied, individually held, individually reported. Likewise, if it's a hedge fund, let's say we have a hedge fund in Cayman Islands, that will be reported over to the Thai tax authority on an annual basis going forward. If we have an insurance-based product, if it has a cash value, so if it's a, not a sort of term life and it's not a liability related, but it has a cash value, and perhaps Roger might mention what that means later on. Uh, then again, that is reported here. We're saying that we've got one in Luxembourg uh, held by a Thai tax resident individual that will be reported to the uh, Thai tax authority. What if you hold accounts indirectly through an offshore company? Now, in this case, we've got an offshore company and it holds an account um, with a bank. Now, here you need to consider the types of individuals that are connected to the company. And I've got individuals with more than 25% shares, individuals with less than 25% of the shares, and then someone who's just made a loan to the company or a venture. So how is this reported if you hold your accounts indirectly through an offshore company? In this case, typically, it will be the, uh, the sort of uh, uh, controlling person or a person that holds more than 25% of the shares they'll be the one that's subject to the annual reporting uh, going forward. Um, members that have less than that generally are not, where the company is just a simple investment 
company doing nothing else than holding investments and loans are not captured in this scenario. What if I hold it through a trust? What if I have a trust account going forward and I have a settlor and a beneficiary and protector? In this case, we've got an account held by a trust in uh, Hong Kong. Again, the same reporting mechanism, the settlor of a trust is automatically uh, reported. Protectors are automatically reported. Beneficiaries are only reported to the extent that they receive distributions from the trust. So very, very, so there is a difference between companies and there is a difference between companies and trusts uh, and obviously individually holding. Obviously this is a high level and uh, a sort of canter through. The details on these rules are quite painful. So, um, you know, you would need to take specific advice if you were applying this to um, particular circumstances. But that's broadly how this mechanism works. Even if you hold assets or financial accounts indirectly through a company or a trust, the rules are adapted for that purpose and they will also apply. Okay, now other financial science initiatives other than the reporting of financial accounts. Now here, I'll just run through what is the economic substance rules and how, why, do, why does that have a reporting mechanism? And I'll look at beneficial ownership registers and the jurisdictions that are implementing these and what it looks like going forward. So starting off with economic substance. There are 12 jurisdictions that have been highlighted by effectively the, uh, the OECD acting through this initiative, the base erosion profit shifting initiative. You'll see all of the usual um, sort of British overseas territories, including the BPI, and you'll also see at the end the United Arab Emirates. They're all been highlighted. And the reason why is they're either no or low tax jurisdictions. So they're being targeted. Now, in this instance, I'm looking specifically at, so you've got these jurisdictions, but I'm looking specifically at an offshore investment company that just holds pure equity, okay? That's all it does. It holds other, other shares in other companies or in other entities like a hedge fund, for instance. And what do the rules require? So this is what the, the whole issue is on this base erosion profit shifting initiative when it comes to offshore investment companies. They want, going forward, that each of these offshore investment companies has adequate staff and premises going forward. That's the economic substance aspect. And the reason why they have that is to try and effectively bring in a level playing field between jurisdictions that have high taxes or a concept of taxation and jurisdictions that don't. So they require going forward that offshore companies, offshore investment companies particularly, can adequately show staff and premises some level of substance. Now, just note, it's talking about pure equity companies only. So if you have interests in companies, hedge funds, mutual funds, these are all equity states. If the company has interests in non-equity, like land, for instance, or it engages in trading activities, it wouldn't be pure equity, so it'd be outside the rules. But most often investment companies will be involved in this way, or they'll be in a chain of ownership. So what happens in the, in the case, and this one I'm showing a Thai um, shareholder has more than 25% shares, BVI company with a bank account. What happens if we don't have any staff? What if we fail the economic substance test? That gives rise to an automatic spontaneous exchange of information, in this case between the International Tax Authority in the Virgin Islands with the Thai Tax Authority. So what will happen is the details of the company and the shareholder will be disclosed to the Thai Tax Authority because of an economic substance failure. 
So that's one of the reporting mechanisms that you should be aware of when dealing with offshore companies going forward. All of them will have to show some level of substance unless they are outside of the rules. Last bit, which is to deal with beneficial ownership registers. So these deal principally with beneficial ownership of companies, offshore companies, and beneficial ownership of trusts. So what does it do? Here you've got a company, again, shareholders above 25%, below 25%, and debenture or loan holders. And what we're looking at here is a searchable database with respect to those individuals. Now, the only one that will be highlighted in the current uh, phase of these rules will be a shareholder above 25%. You can have others in there that have significant interests in terms of how they effectively are influencing the company, but generally you're looking at uh, members that have more than 25% of the ownership of the shares of the company. They will appear on a searchable database. For trusts, it's a bit more pervasive. So it's the settler, beneficiary, and the protector. And, and the rules, as they've been drafted and experienced in Europe, for instance, are very intrusive with respect to the data that's captured. Now, you have to consider that some of these beneficiaries may well be minors, underaged individuals. The idea is a searchable database going forward. Now, the, the biggest worry that we have with this is uh, effectively how this will work when it comes to the data privacy and the, the potential for this type of information to be correlated for hacking purposes, ransomware, etc. This is an emerging area. There's been a lot of consultation around these risks, but it doesn't appear to be getting through. So jurisdictions that are going forward with this must be aware if you are, if you hold structures in those jurisdictions, then there will be a heightened risk of uh, sort of cybersecurity with respect to your details going forward. And this is something that will emerge in a, in a greater way going forward in time. So which jurisdictions are implementing these searchable databases? The European Union, through their anti-money laundering directive, has already implemented, has already implemented, sorry, uh, the public access to corporate registers. So any companies that you have in the European Union, Cyprus or Malta or Ireland, um, would be uh, captured on a corporate access to the, uh, the sort of uh, register. With respect to trusts, there's only qualified access, so you have to show a legitimate reason. Now, here's the interesting point. When it comes to a legitimate reason, an investigative journalist has a legitimate reason to search the database, and that's written into the preamble or the, uh, the opening to these EU directives. Now, other jurisdictions that have implemented searchable databases, go back, the UK, all companies in the UK would be subject to a corporate, an open, freely accessible corporate register, again, for UK-based trusts would be the same. Now, the UK is generally not a jurisdiction that you would set up overseas companies when you're investing or holding your private investments. However, it's the British overseas territories they become a lot, a lot more interesting for this. Sorry, this is a problem with Zoom trying to catch up. So British Overseas Territories, um, they will have public access to the corporate register um, going forward from 2023 onwards. So the principal jurisdictions that would be captured by this would be Anguilla, BVI, Bermuda, Cayman and Turks and Caicos. So what happens is if you have, and typically many um, high net worth individuals in Asia will have BVI companies. Uh, going forward into 2023, your beneficial ownership of that company 
will be freely accessible on the internet um, uh, and searchable. The same applies to the Crown dependencies of Jersey, Guernsey and Isle of Man. Again, 2023 is the, uh, the, the, the date for that going forward. Now, with respect to land and property, there is no global standard at the moment for beneficial ownership information to be disclosed on holding of land. However, with respect to the United Kingdom, they intend to introduce the Registration of Overseas Entities Act. Target date is this year, although it's been pushed a long time, you know, for a number of years now, so we might not have this. But what it means is this, if you hold UK land through a foreign company, then that foreign company will need to register in the UK and will register its beneficial owners. So that in future, you can search the database to see who is the beneficial owner of a property in London held through an overseas company. And so this is something that's um, been suggested many times uh, and the target date is this year, although we're running out of time. When challenged on this, um, I think the, the government has just said that because of COVID, the parliamentary time is limited to bring this into force, but it's something that's a commitment. And that, but that's with respect to the first time that we've seen beneficial ownership registers applied not just to companies and trusts, but also now starting to go into beneficial ownership of land and holdings. Summary, okay, so there's a lot of concepts there. So what I'm trying to do is to try to show you graphically how to think through these things. So if you hold a bank account, an overseas bank account, then the principal reporting mechanism for that will be a common reporting standard. It will report the account and your association with that account every year. Likewise, if you're holding, uh, let's say, a hedge fund interest or cash value insurance, again, these are all going to be habitually reported every year. If you hold your asset indirectly or your financial account indirectly through a company, you'll need to consider who, what your interest is on the company with respect to whether or not you're disclosable going forward. Economic substance rules will be applicable. You'll need to consider whether or not they apply because if they do, you'll have to put in potentially more substance to these companies going forward. And if you fail, that's an automatic spontaneous exchange of information with where you are. Likewise, you'll need to be aware of the public access that's going to be in the future to your beneficial ownership of that company going forward. So generally, the, it's only the person that holds a, a, a greater than 25% interest in the company that's reportable for all of these mechanisms. But you can understand there are a number of rules that are all shaping up from the CRS, the Common Reporting Standard, to the Economic Substance Rules, straight through to the Beneficial Ownership Registers that all impact on the transparency of um, these, these offshore structures going forward. If you hold it through a trust, then it becomes even more disclosable because all of the interests will be um, disclosed. So beneficiaries, um, settlor, protector will all be disclosable. The important thing to note in all of this is the interrelation of these rules, the jurisdiction that you're in, and that it's dynamic, it changes, they change over time. And so all of this factors in to show that offshore structuring now becomes a lot more complex going forward. Particularly, the one aspect that you need to consider is the privacy and security considerations in having these forms of structures going forward. Key jurisdictions, this last bit on this, the key jurisdictions on this are Anguilla, Bermuda, BBI, Cayman, Guernsey, Isle of Man, Jersey, and Turks and Caicos. These are the principal jurisdictions that will be affected by these rules in the immediate 
uh, future, uh, particularly into 2023. Okay. Right. Now, uh, switching over to um, the US financial surveillance, what I'd like to do is just invite John to run through some of the aspects that he felt were most important for us to consider and understand uh, going forward. And there, there are three parts to, to, to John's narrative on this. The first is noise in the US system. And there's, there's three bits that John wants to discuss here. Pandora Papers, corporate transparency, and tax law changes. So John, if I, I just hand over to you to, to run through your points on this. Yeah, thanks, Zach. And, and you know, I understand as Zach mentioned, I'm a U.S. tax practitioner. I understand that the U.S. is not the main emphasis of today's presentation, but as we often find, um, the complexity of the U.S. system can create issues uh, for onshore structuring, whether it's family members that have gone to the U.S. or direct investments into the U.S. or cash flow out of the U.S., uh, people looking at, at, at giving up their connections to the U.S. So I, wanna, I wanted to, with today's presentation, do a quick high-level overview with the goal of either, you know, triggering a memory for you of something that you're directly or indirectly involved in and you weren't aware of this issue. And so now, okay, now I know it and I can take a proper advice or, or plan with it, or just educate the attendees so that you can be an issue spotter for the clientele that you're serving. Um, and that's really, I, I've long thought that regardless of the subject matter expertise, any of us as panelists on this call or as attendees, anything that we develop from a subject matter expertise is really secondary to the value we provide in simply being someone who can bring a client's attention to a concept. So hopefully today's, uh, my short presentation will just give you a heads up on a few things to pay attention to, or as we're starting here on the first slide, maybe you don't need to pay attention to because it's getting some noise in the system, but we can cut through that. So first of all, the Pandora Papers. I think there was a lot of buzz um, at the beginning of the week, a couple weeks back about the Pandora Papers. And there was a lot of emphasis on the United States, the idea that certain South Dakota information or certain um, offshore providers with US operations had data leaked and there was gonna be this big attention on the US. The US had become what they had tried to, to shut down, the, the secrecy capital of the world. Um, you know, For a few reasons, I think that's mostly noise. One, just from a general perspective, it passed very quickly. The social media age we live in today, you know, stories, if they don't lock on, they're gone out of people's minds. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending upon your position, um, the ICIJ happened to drop this at the same time that Facebook got in trouble for its whistleblower and took all the attention away from, from this, what otherwise might've been a, a big story as we saw with the release of the Panama Papers originally. So I don't think there's a lot of noise there. There's not an allegation that there's illegality happening. Uh, the US is pretty strong with the Patriot Act under KYC AML. Um, not a lot of folks uh, hiding money in the US engage in any type of criminal activity other than non-disclosure uh, for, for tax purposes. And we'll talk to that on the, we'll talk about a little bit about that on the back end of what I'm gonna cover. So I, I think the Pandora Papers is not something that should cause people who are using the US system and US structuring to have an, uh, too big of an amount of concern. Similarly, uh, a few months before that, there was a lot of noise around co corporate transparency in the US and the US 
kind of joining on to what Zach so eloquently summarized in, in the first part of the presentation, this idea of public registers and access to information and automatic exchange. Um, you know, that's really uh, kind of been overrepresented by the media, I think. When you look at the actual act, the Corporate Transparency Act that was passed, and then some of the ancillary noise in that space, there's not a lot changing or happening. Um, the Corporate Transparency Act itself in force, but is reliant upon regulations which have yet to be uh, revealed. They're slated to be revealed in January of next year. But even when they are issued out for the first time in draft form, we'll really be looking at what's their enactment date and that will necessarily be out farther into the future. And then we highly suspect that there will be a lot of winnowing down of the types of entities that are affected. Right now, it is pretty broad. I acknowledge that. But they're going to carve out and exempt a lot of, of companies. Um, and again, as you'll see in, in uh, second or third part of my presentation, a lot of the state has already been disclosed to U.S. authorities. And so it's not something new that, that uh, a client needs to be overly concerned about. So I think there's a lot of noise around corporate transparency in the U.S. Um, not, not really much is going to change there. And I, I don't foresee the U.S. signing up to um, CRS in the in the near future. The, the reciprocal IGA uh, concept seems to be working for them uh, and, and gives them a nice uh, deflection point to say, look, we don't really need to participate in CRS because everyone who signs an IGA with us has the option of, of doing a reciprocal agreement. I should note uh, an interesting point there. Singapore recently switched their IGA, went to a reciprocal. None of us can figure out why. Uh, you know, and, and and could that change from a Thai perspective or, or Malaysia recently signing up to their IGA? You know, those can change whenever a country decides to. So understand that the U.S. may not be participating in CRS in the foreseeable future, but in some ways they already are under the concept of reciprocal uh, exchange. And then the last thing that there's a lot of noise around right now is tax law changes, whether that's changing the top income tax rate, raising the corporate tax rate lowering the U.S. estate tax exemption amount, changing the way the capital gains are taxed and what the basis step up is. There's a lot of noise around that. Anyone who's watched U.S. politics for the last five, six, seven years can tell you the one thing that has been consistent is inaction. They cannot get together to agree on passing almost anything. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're stuck in a battle right now. I don't think it's highly likely that we're going to see massive, massive changes. There'll be some tweaks around the edges. Um, so, you know, if you do have direct investments into the U.S. or you yourself are a U.S. person, it, it's good to monitor and talk to an advisor. But I wouldn't be shocked if we got to the end of this year and there was just a failure to pass a bill because they just couldn't get the votes that required. So that's the noise in the system that you see in the news right now. I don't think you necessarily need to pay a lot of attention to those. But let's move to a few items where I think um, maybe these have slipped under the radar and you should be paying attention to it because these can have a substantive effect on the clients you serve or your own individual holdings. So first on FATCA. FATCA has been in effect. Uh, Thailand signed the uh, IGA relatively early on. So it's been in effect for a couple of responsible officer cycles now. Now, for those of you that are very well versed with FATCA, uh, you, you may hear me say responsible officer cycles, and, and you may say, well, wait a minute, John, but, uh, Thailand has a Model 1 IGA, and so those aren't directly relevant. And you're absolutely right. So Model 1 jurisdictions don't have 
those same responsible officer certifications that non-Model 1 Treasury Reg or Model 2 jurisdictions do. There can be some from a sponsoring entity perspective, which is the way that large corporate service providers or trustees help manage the volume of structures that they're doing this automatic exchange um, reporting for. So there can be some, but there is an indirect element that I think everyone should think about. Any Model 1 FI that is exempted from that technical signing on to the IRS portal and doing the responsible officer certification, you should download that form and review it internally because eventually Thai government, much like the Singapore government and others in the region will begin audits. And that RO certification that the IRS uses every three years is a perfect template. If you're complying with that you're going to pass whatever internal audit comes up within your home jurisdiction. So just a heads up, if people have been relying upon their Model 1 status and they haven't really been directly doing uh, those responsible officer certifications because it's not a technical requirement, I would encourage you to go ahead and go through that. It'll save you a lot of hassle down the road when audits are eventually rolled out. You'll be prepared for them. You'll pass with flying colors and you'll save yourself a lot of headache. Another issue that we get a lot of questions about, and I just want to give a heads up to folks, we get a lot of queries where people ask, how do we get to a zero balance? There are some judgment calls, particularly in the fiduciary structure space with trusts, where when a trustee or another corporate service provider is uh, reporting, their judgment calls on what balance needs to be reported uh, about a person. Typically, these are people who fit the ultimate effective control category. Um, I would just caution folks, a race to get to a zero balance might be counterproductive. And what I mean is there are massive, massive volumes of information being automatically exchanged, both under FATCA and CRS globally. My suspicion and understanding from talking to individuals and in tax authorities around the world is that seeing a zero is way more of a trigger or an attention drawer than general balances, which get lost in the noise. Um, another thing to mention there though is algorithms are incredibly good at distinguishing between made up numbers and actual numbers. So to the extent that you might be tempted to cut corners and just put a value in without going through the uh, process of accumulating different balances and stuff to come to a total. Don't do that because you as a human being, if you're just putting balances in, are going to betray a, a internal um, kind of pattern that you have that I've spoken to tax authorities and they're using algorithms to sort through their FATCA data. Um, so try to use genuine data as much as possible because it won't get caught in those algorithms and flagged like zeros are being flagged as well. And then the last thing to mention in regard to FATCA, I think is the knock-on effects. So as awareness of the US system grew in the region, particularly from 2015 to today, we're starting to see the Department of Justice turn their attention to the Asia region and banks are being approached. And, and in Thailand, the, the banks need to be prepared for this. They're being approached and um, the, the IRS is, along with the DOJ, examining books to see if they've released funds 
when clients have passed away to the next generation, to the executor, to the sons and daughters, have they released funds from accounts that had investments, direct investments in U.S. securities? There is a U.S. estate tax exposure for non-U.S. persons, not the worldwide exposure that I as a U.S. citizen have, but holding U.S. securities directly, Apple shares, Google shares, Facebook shares, anything over 60,000 USD and you pass away, you've got a 40% U.S. estate tax exposure. And the IRS and the DOJ are going at banks who have released those funds and said, you had no right to release those funds. You knew there were U.S. securities in those accounts. You knew there was an outstanding liability. The banks are getting familiar with this now and knowing that they're going to be audited. So they're asking the second generation to provide a transfer certificate. That's a formal process where the U.S. releases and they acknowledge that either there was no estate tax due or that the estate tax return was filed. So I'm getting a lot of inquiries in this space, just a heads up to be aware. Um, if you have clients that are holding US securities directly, it's a very simple fix. Have them change the account over to a properly set up and run offshore company rather than their own individual name. And you've solved this problem and you've saved a lot of time delay and cost headaches for the next generation when the time comes for them to take over the account. Uh, uh, when the original owner passes away. Lastly, I want to draw people's attention to the things that the IRS itself has said they are paying particular attention to. So we know there's a lot of noise in this space that is real noise and genuine, and you should be aware of it. There are a lot of non-U.S. persons, uh, particularly in Thailand, that own U.S. property. There are several recent, and I say recent, within the last three or four years, developments where there are forms that need to be filed. Uh, form 5472 is a form where uh, a U.S. LLC that is owned by a foreign entity has to disclose the foreign entity's ultimate beneficial owner information, similar to the concepts that, that Zach again covered earlier. That for U.S. real estate has been in place for a while now, and there are substantial penalties if that LLC doesn't file that form. Having a US LLC holding US real estate and owned by a foreign company is the most common way of holding US real estate by a non-US person. It's an estate tax blocker with the foreign company. But now there is going to be, and there has been for a little while, this noise in the system where you've got to disclose the identity. It's not the end of the world because that identity was probably already being disclosed to banks and other entities under the Patriot Act and KYC AML. And it's not something that there's an automatic exchange in regard. But it's interesting that the U.S. is being more aggressive on real estate as opposed to U.S. trusts, which was the subject of the Pandora Papers that we talked about. There's really nothing in place to demand that U.S.-based trustees disclose this information to the IRS. They are looking at structures which are holding U.S. real estate. We'll have to disclose that. That's the opposite of the international uh, realm, as a lot of you are familiar, and, and I can attest sitting here in Singapore and particularly on Sentosa, uh, the gap in CRS right now is it's picking up bankable and non-bankable assets, but real estate is kind of a black box where that value and that equity is not being reported automatically under CRS. Well, it's the opposite in the US, strangely enough, for the country that's not participating in CRS. They're taking the more aggressive approach to track down ownership of real estate, not going after trust and fiduciary structures yet. 
Also with expatriation, the IRS has said they're paying particular attention to people who leave the U.S. system. So if you've got clients or you yourself had a U.S. connection in the past, you had a green card, you were born in the U.S., you were automatically a citizen, you need to pay very particular attention to the manner in which you give that up. And it's always good to give it up. You can get out of that tax system. It's one of the most complex and, and, and the most onerous. But if you don't do it properly, there can be uh, lingering both civil and criminal penalties and tax liabilities. And the IRS has said they're paying very particular attention to the tax returns and the document filings of people who are surrendering their long-held green cards or their citizenship. So important to take advice and get that done correctly. A lot of people don't understand there's a tax consequence of giving up that citizenship or that status. And then lastly, the IRS every year publishes something called the IRS's Dirty Dozen, where they list the 12 most uh, egregious or aggressive tax planning schemes that they are going after, and they're going to try to stop down, stop people from doing them. For the first time, Malta's pension plan industry, which is a um, absolutely correct, literal interpretation of the Malta treaty with the U.S., but is for most practitioners acknowledged as, you know, leads to a ludicrous result where that application of that wording and that situation leads to no tax being owed where the U.S. has never foregone taxation in those situations. For the first time, the IRS put that Balta pension plan concept on its IRS dirty dozen and, and has said that they're paying particularly attention to anyone who set up that type of structure to defer or avoid uh, U.S income tax. So be very careful about that. And if you've got clients that are um, involved in that, uh, you know, give them a heads up that they need to take proactive measures now to kind of get their legal opinions in better shape. Or if they've taken aggressive positions, they might want to consider doing a streamlined disclosure, getting out of that position and switching to uh, a position that's a little more um, amenable to the IRS and does pay uh, a minimal amount of tax. And, and that's that last thing to mention there. Deferral reduction strategies the U.S. has a very clear set of anti-deferral rules, the CFC rules and the PFIC rules. They're on record as saying they just they, they do not allow U.S. persons to accumulate income offshore and not pick that up on an annual basis on their tax returns. So, you know, be, be circumspect if it sounds too good to be true. There's plenty of ways to properly structure. Um, and we all should be pushing back against some of the sentiments that are expressed, in my opinion, in the, the Pandora Papers and other leaks that, that somehow try to besmirch legitimate planning. But we're all harmed in that position when a race to zero uh, becomes something that, that, that we get into. If it's too good to be true, uh, you know, uh, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. So don't try to take too aggressive up a position, definitely when it comes to the U.S. That, that's all I had. I'll, I'll jump in as we do the examples and give little um, anecdotes or tidbits about the U.S. connection to things. But uh, I'm going to turn it over to the ones who know a lot more substantively about the local rules and the, the examples. Thanks, Zach. Thanks very much. Thanks. Uh, thanks, John. Very helpful. Okay, so we'll move on and we'll look at the tax policy update for high net worth individuals with respect to Thailand. Now here, the real emphasis of, of our discussion here is really looking at what is the Thai tax authority going to do in the context of the COVID-19 recovery phase when we're trying to bring back in revenue into the coffers and try and recover the economy. 
So there are a number of aspects that I'd ask um, the Chilipat to, to, to talk about, particularly whether or not we are likely to have an amnesty in Thailand. Some other jurisdictions are doing that as a way of, of, um, of helping the, the taxing authority. Are we likely to have inheritance tax reform and increase potentially in the rate of inheritance tax, which is quite low? Are we likely to have windfall tax or a wealth tax reform going forwards? What, what do we look at as a potential area that the Thai tax authority may be looking at when it comes to high net worth individuals? Obviously, Thailand has a very generous system when it comes to tax remittance and the way in which it taxes overseas income and gains. Is there going to be changes there? And then looking more at the use of CRS data, is this going to drive more tax audits going forward? So I'll start with this slate of, 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 of points, um, and just ask your opinion. What are we likely to see if we're high net worth individuals in Thailand, if we're advising high net worth individuals in Thailand, are we likely to see any of these changes coming through as the Thai tax authority tries to deal with the COVID-19 fallout? Thanks, Zach. Uh, as, uh, as we uh, discussed earlier, in terms of the uh, tax amnesty in Thailand, uh, no, no issue discussed in Thailand, but you know, uh, 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 when we discuss on the COVID situation, uh, the Thai Thai government uh, announced the discount of the tax rate, but but uh, not for all. Discount for the property tax, the new property tax in Thailand, uh, uh, effective as from uh, last three years and uh, start from uh, last year, 2020, and uh, to, uh, this year, uh, discount 90%. And, and then uh, uh, last year and this year, the property tax rate uh, only paid, only paid at the 10%, but next year will be the same, same, uh, same rate of 100%. And, and we believe that uh, uh, no, no discount tax rate. Uh, and, and then uh, when we discuss on the tax amnesty, I don't think that uh, the Thai government will, will do something like this, similar to other countries. And uh, uh, in addition to the uh, property tax, the Thai government announced that uh, the VAT rat, uh, rate, VAT, uh, or GST in Singapore or Australia, uh, the VAT rate are still uh, 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 7%, 7% tax rate. Uh, similar to the previous years and uh, up to the next uh, two or three years. <clears throat> and, and then they, they try to steal 7% seven, uh, seven, uh, seven tax rate because, you know, the, uh, the, the Thai government try to control the wars, <laughs> control the wars and control the, uh, the parliament, <laughs> the parliament, right? This is the uh, politic, this is a politic issue. Right. Uh, in terms of amnesty, I, I don't think that uh, the, uh, the Thai government will be do something like this. And uh, no, no voice on, on no, 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 uh, uh, some early warning sign from the Thai revenue department. No. Right. Right. Uh, CRS data, when, when they start to get all of this data flowing in to the, uh, to the tax authority, what, what do you think they're going to do with all this information? Because that seems to be the most apprehension is having so much data coming in. What, that's right. That's right. You know, you know, uh, during the COVID-19 last year and this year, the, the Thai government, they, they, uh, they introduced the uh, many, many uh, campaigns and uh, uh, subsidy fund to the, uh, the, uh, the Thai citizens uh, in, in, in case of chopping to, to increase uh, more economic uh, cycle. And, and you know, uh, 
I, I don't think I don't think that uh, the 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 Thai government will will uh, collaborate and uh, will gather the big data from from the Thai taxpayer. Most of them that uh, the Thai government they they can gather and can get is the uh, uh, the mass uh, uh, the, uh, the 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 high high group of the uh, uh, of the uh, uh, blue collar, not white collar, or not high net worth individuals. No. Right. I mean, do yeah. we think that um, there are likely to be more tax audits? I, I I don't think so. I don't think so. You know, before COVID nineteen uh, in uh, two thousand eighteen two thousand nineteen, uh, the Thai Tax Authority uh, they announced the uh, the new law uh, to 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 order the commercial banks in Thailand to uh, prepare and to uh, monitor the bank account, personal bank account, and corporate bank account uh, in case of the deposit in or the pay in uh, amount. Of the bank account, uh, for example, uh, for 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 one year, if the deposit in or pay in uh, over three thousand times per year, this is the requirement that the commercial bank be report to the Thai Revenue Department. And another another requirement is to uh, report to the tax authority when the amount of pay in over uh, two million baht, two million baht, and uh, over 400 times, 400 times. And you know, uh, the Thai tax authority, they try to, to cash up, uh, pass through the uh, tax ID number or two ID number of the, the, the Thai citizen. Yeah. But I, I don't think in, in practice will be, will be uh, efficient now. Right. And so right. For, for, for clients that have significant wealth in Hong Kong or in Singapore, Yep. have you know companies and BVI etc when that data starts coming in yep. do they need to be concerned that there will be questions asked as to how did you accumulate all of this wealth how did you get this is, is that likely to be something that's uh, that's picked up on on discussions going forward or do you think that the tax authority is not yet ready to engage uh. with that Right, right. As as we discussed earlier, uh, from my experience, I I think the uh, Thai Revenue Department they will they will do more tax audit in Thailand first, and uh, they will leave the offshore transaction offshore uh, taxpayers uh, later. I think uh, because the the system, another issue is a uh, language and uh, communication, uh, because you know uh, when 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 the Thai Revenue Department they will do something the tax audit offshore and use the CIS data, I don't think it will be quick for, for, for Thailand. Right, right, right. I think the other aspect was Thailand is obviously a member of this base erosion profit shifting initiative by the OECD. Is it possible, and I've put a whole bunch of terms there, CFC, corporate tax residency, permanent establishment, transfer pricing, thin capitalization. Is it possible that Thailand will start off looking at the corporate side of the taxpayers rather than the individual side. And, and, and some of these like CFC rules will, will be brought in. I wonder if you could just um, give us an update on, first of all, how Thailand's doing with adopting some of this base erosion profit shifting initiative. Right, right. These concepts like CFC and corporate tax residency and how they apply to Thailand. Just uh, is it something that's likely to be a focus rather than high net worth for the, uh -huh. for the immediate future? 
Okay, when when we discuss on the uh, uh, BEPS 15 actions, uh, yeah. Thailand now adopt uh, the transfer pricing as a law and uh, effective as from uh, last two years and then uh, uh, last year and this year, the, 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 the taxpayer is required to disclose the uh, related parties, uh, but next year will be the, the next step of a transfer pricing law. Uh, in terms of uh, marketing price, uh, arms length price, and the uh, and the uh, sales service, uh, and intra-company loan among the groups of the company. Uh, but for CFC control foreign company, I, I don't think uh, uh, this is the, the choice of the Thai tax authority in Thailand to 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 announce and to introduce to the, the Thai market. Uh, in terms of the corporate tax resident, uh, uh, by practice and by law. Uh, Thai tax uh, adopt the uh, registration, the place of registration. No sure. need, no need to have the uh, economic substance or place of management. Similar to, uh, different from other countries like Singapore, Hong Kong, but uh, PE issue is a, a DTA issue, double tax agreement. Uh, this is uh, the 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 law come to effect uh, a long time ago, and uh, some some multinational companies in Thailand, in Thailand, the uh, the project uh, they they got attacked from the tax uh, authority. For example, a drug Comtech and drug France from France, uh, and uh, lose the case uh, from from the Supreme Court. In terms of thin capitalization, I think the next step after TP, after transfer pricing, will be thin capitalization. And uh, it is understood that uh, in the process of uh, uh, law amendment. And go back to the uh, inheritance tax reform, I don't think that that uh, the Thai inheritance tax will, will be reformed, but the, the whole picture, the whole picture, the government, Thai government is in the process of Thai tax reform. And they, they announced the gift tax, announced the inheritance tax, in, uh, announced the uh, uh, property tax, the new property tax, uh, and uh, study on windfall tax. But I, I don't think that windfall tax uh, uh, will come uh, in the next or the near future. Right, right. Okay, so just one, one little bit on the, the corporate side. So if yep. we have, if a Thai, uh, a high net worth individual has a offshore company like a BDI company, Yep. which is rolling up income and gains with respect to a financial account in Singapore. Yes. We don't see a, uh, we don't feel at this point that there is any uh, mood to amend the law to allow that rolled up income and gains to be taxed in Thailand. We think that that won't be, the CFC will not apply. That's right. Forward, is that right? That's right. That's right. Not apply. And and uh, many cases that I have deal with, and uh, the other the other tax uh, service provider or tax advisor in Thailand, we we still adopt that practice because uh, no sense of uh, GAAR in Thailand amendment. Yeah. Right. 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 All right. Good. Thank you very much, um, Jennifer, for that. I think we'll we'll, we'll move on now to look at the, uh, the the sort of round table and discuss some of the topical case studies that, that we see in practice. And I think I'll start off with a, a very simple scenario where we have an individual in Thailand, tax resident in Thailand. They have a cryptocurrency account in Singapore. They have a deposit account in Hong Kong, and they also have a deposit account in the United States. So they're holding all of these various um, sort of uh, sources of wealth in their own personal name. Now, I'll run through and counter through the, the questions. The first is I'll ask um, John to look at uh, the, the US tax implications and reporting implications for 
This Titax individual that holds the US deposit account in their own name, um, first of all, what's the, the potential tax exposure and what's the reporting implications of that person doing so? Yeah, so uh, a few things to to pay attention there to the extent that they're holding U.S. securities, like I mentioned, if it's in their own name, there could be a U.S. exposure. It's important not to confuse that here, though. It's not because it's in the U.S. account. It's because of the nature of that stock. Even if it was held in a non-U.S. account, there'd be that exposure. The cash sitting in a U.S. account, if transferred to another account in the U.S., there is a risk in an argument that there's a gift tax that's, account that's accounted for there. So if, if a non-US person has an account in the US and they intend to make a transfer to a family member or to a friend that's a gift, we always say transfer from one of your non-US accounts uh, instead of transferring from your US account because you don't want to even bring in the argument that there's uh, a gift tax implications. And then, you know, interest earned there, typically US sourced interest is going to be handled through withholding. So they're not going to have to do anything per se. They've just filled out a W-8 form appropriately, and the bank is going to withhold 30% on interest and dividends uh, that, are, that are paid out to that account. Reporting side for FATCA purposes, will the Thai tax authority become aware of this U.S. account held by the, the Thai tax resident individual? Yeah, not, not currently, but again, that's what we need to be paying attention to and kind of monitoring and watching to see what type of developments happen, either on the type of data that the U.S. is getting, because it's not a one-for-one -one match under reciprocal agreements, and then whether the country signs uh, a reciprocal agreement or switches to reciprocal agreement for going forward, but not currently. From an international standpoint, we're really looking at um, the account held in Hong Kong Obviously, that account will be annually reported from 23 onwards, 2023. So from a, a Hong Kong financial institution, they'll report to their local tax authority and then they'll report across to the Thai tax authority, effectively the gross balance of that account every year going forward. With respect to cryptocurrencies, there's nothing in place at the moment, although by the end of this year, we should have the OECD rules dealing with crypto reporting. So for that Thai tax resident individual with crypto assets or digital wealth held in Singapore, there's no, currently no requirement for that to be reported to the Thai tax authority. Uh, there will be separate rules uh, that the OECD will put in place. Um, we are thinking that draft of this will be issued by the end of the year, which will mean that as for the bank account in Hong Kong, eventually the cryptocurrency or the digital wealth will also be reported to the Thai tax authority in due course. This may take many years, though. It may not be something that will happen immediately. And we haven't seen the draft rules yet, but there are rules that will come into effect, both from an OECD perspective, so internationally, as well as with the European Union as well, going forward. Now, just looking at the, sorry, looking through. From the Thai tax considerations, Kachunapat, uh, just looking at yep. this, from your perspective, we've got obviously uh, some level of interest of income uh, being held in the deposit accounts in the US and as well as the accounts held in Hong Kong. And then we've got this crypto wealth. From a Thai tax perspective, um, do we tax cryptocurrency for inheritance tax? Is that something that's covered by the inheritance tax? Are all oh. these accounts going to be taxable? Yep, yep. Uh, in, in case of the uh, cryptocurrency or digital asset or token utilities, 
uh, Thailand, we announced uh, the uh, digital asset law and uh, now governed by the ACC. Uh, ACC uh, take care of the capital market. I, uh, we, we don't know why why uh, Bank of Thailand uh, did not touch on this because uh, the cryptocurrency should, should be under the supervisory of the Bank of Thailand. But in terms of uh, 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 the taxable income, the tax authority uh, announced the law after the, the, the SEC law or digital asset law to take uh, to, to impose a tax uh, on the uh, uh, digital asset. But you know, uh, not 100% clear for uh, the digital asset because uh, uh, we, we, we discuss on the uh, two sides of tax. The first one is the taxable income. Another one is a VAT, goods or not goods. VAT on on cryptocurrency, right? And and in terms of the inheritance tax, uh, when we discuss on the uh, inheritance tax, just only the asset under the estate, just only four four uh, asset under the uh, estate uh, to be imposed by inheritance tax in Thailand. For example, cash in bank, uh, immovable property. Second, and the third one will be vehicle, vehicle. Uh, jet, yacht, uh, truck, car, supercar, and uh, the, the last one will be shares in stock market or outside stock market. Uh, and then the next one, no, not yet, not yet uh, announced. And maybe uh, the, the, the last one may be the cryptocurrency right. to, okay. to be taxed. Right. Yep. Now, looking at the another topical example, we've got a company in the BVI, an offshore investment company in the BVI. Uh, we've got various individuals owning an interest in that, so some less than 25, more than 25, some by way of a loan. And then we've got underlying um, assets. So we've got a property, land in the US, we've got a deposit account, again in Hong Kong, and then we've got a mutual fund in Luxembourg. So a typical scenario of an investment company held by Thai tax resident individuals. So the question is, from a US standpoint, John, looking at the land held via the BVI company, um, what is the US exposure in those circumstances that the Thai tax resident individuals should be concerned about and which of them should be concerned, if any? Yeah, so the company itself, the offshore company, as long as it's properly set up and run, is a blocker against U.S. estate tax. So we've got a, a good outcome from that perspective. However, you got to look at income and disposition. So from an income perspective, if the property is being rented out, then that income is U.S. sourced income. There will be tax owed. And unlike the withholding situation that I talked about earlier with banks, oftentimes those paying rent don't understand. They may have an obligation. It, it's There may be a technical obligation that the person renting the home has to withhold 30% of their rental payment, but they're not doing it. That doesn't relieve the recipient of that, of their tax exposure and their tax liability. They'll need to file a return, a 1040NR, and pay the tax. So if, if someone's renting that property out, you want to look out for U.S. tax exposure. The other thing to consider is when the property is sold. The U.S. sources capital gains based on where the person making the sale is tax resident. That's an incentive for non-U.S. persons to invest into the U.S. If a non-U.S. person buys a Facebook share for $1 and sells it a year later for $10, that $9 gain spread does not result in taxation for them because the sourcing of that gain is offshore. I, if I buy that same Facebook share and it goes up to $10, I pay 
capital gains tax on that $9 spread because I'm a US tax resident. Property is the one exception though. US got scared back in the 80s that too many non-US persons were coming into California and buying up all the land. So they instituted something called FERPTA, Foreign Investment in Real Property Tax Act. Basically, it reinstitutes a capital gain on the sale of U.S. property. So if the BVI company sells that property, there will be a gain tax owed to the extent that the property has grown in value from the acquisition cost. You can get around that by selling the shares of the BVI company. But don't get too excited because anybody who's going to pay for the shares of that BVI company are not going to pay the full price that they would pay if they were buying the property property directly because they know there's an embedded tax owed when they eventually dispose directly of the property. So those are the primary tax obligations to think about in that situation. Okay. I think for the international reporting, uh, the Hong Kong account will report through and it will capture the individual that holds more than 25% of the shares. Likewise, the Luxembourg mutual fund will also report through. So you'll have dual reporting on that. That's from a common reporting standpoint. So from the CRS standpoint, looking at economic substance, well, that company holds more than equity. It holds a piece of land, and that would take it outside of the pure equity holding rules. So economic substance rules wouldn't apply to that BVI company. However, the beneficial ownership register would apply, and it would, again, capture the individual that holds more than 25% of the shares. So that individual will be effectively be reported on the CRS as well as a peer as a beneficial owner of this company on a searchable database from 2023 going forwards. Now, continuing back from the, from the Thai aspects, the Thai tax considerations, we've got um, uh, individuals holding a offshore company that are Thai yep. tax residents. So what are their principal concerns if they're holding, if they're just shareholders, for instance, of an overseas um, company? What are the, the, the tax considerations there? Okay, uh, Zach, uh, under the uh, current tax law, uh, in terms of uh, offshore dividend, offshore interest received from the BVI company, uh, regardless of whether uh, uh, how much of the shareholding or percentage of shares, not relevant. And uh, if, they, if uh, the Thai citizen keep the uh, offshore interest, offshore dividend outside Thailand, uh, and bring into Thailand uh, in the next calendar year because a uh, Thai tax year uh, for the uh, personal income tax we 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 count the uh, the ta uh, calendar year. Uh, uh, in 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 that regard, no Thai tax apply. You right. know because uh, because uh, uh, we we in Thailand you know in Thailand we we uh, we have two rules for personal income tax. The first one is a source income rule, and we are talking about uh, the second one, a uh, resident rule. In this case, uh, in Thailand, no uh, nationality rule uh, different from the US. Right. right. Yep. Okay. And then finally, I think uh, looking at the, sorry, going back, a broader structuring considerations. And here I just open it up. Uh, maybe, uh, Joe, from your experience, uh, obviously, You've probably seen a lot of these types of structures. Do you see anything that uh, is trending at the moment with respect to holding assets through BVI companies in a broader way? Or um, is there any, any comment that you'd like to make in respect of the- um, Perhaps a question to uh, Kun Chinapat. Yep. You look at the um, succession um, uh, succession tax, inheritance tax in, um, in Thailand. Yep. Um, 
what what would be the tax consequences if the uh, the BVI company passes on to the um, beneficiaries of any of the Thai shareholders? Okay, okay, Joe. Thanks. Uh, you very good question because you know the difference between a uh, 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 personal income tax. We have only two rules on a uh, uh, tax uh, impose: uh, resident rule and a uh, source income rule. But for the inheritance tax, we have three rules different. Three rules. The first one is the nationality rule. The second one is the resident rule. The third one is the uh, the location rule. Or place of asset, asset rule. The first one, nationality rule, will be applied for for this structure in this slide because uh, uh, if the recipient of the estate or asset after the death of the owner, the offshore shares in the BVI is subject to Thai inheritance tax as well. As well, Joe. Right. Yep. I have lost Joe for a moment there. Okay, so I think if we go further on, just bring it back. Yep. Look at this example. Now here we have a Thai tax resident individual yep. that holds a trading company in Hong Kong. Uh -huh. That trading company has accounts in the US, has accounts in Singapore, but it also has a subsidiary company in the BVI, which in turn has an account in the UAE. So those are the fact patterns. So it's a Thai tax resident individual with a trading company in Hong Kong with a, with a bunch of accounts and then with a subsidiary in the in the uh, PDI. Now, from John, from your perspective, looking at a trading company holding a US account, does it make any difference from what you were saying previously? You know, a, a slight little difference um, insofar as it, it's properly structured and run. It's a blocker, just like the holding company we were talking about earlier. Um, it, it's less likely to have a, um, a beneficial ownership disclosure. It has a separate legal identity as an active business from a, a FATCA perspective, um, you know, probably not doing any uh, reporting. That reporting is stopping at the level of it as an active um, NFE. Right, so from a FATCA perspective, the Thai tax resident individual is not reportable because it's a trading entity. Um, I think that from a CRS perspective on the account held in Singapore, again, the same analysis will apply. It's a trading company in Hong Kong, and therefore from a, uh, a financial institution based in Singapore, they would report the, uh, the entity itself, the trading company itself to the, um, the tax authority in Hong Kong, but they wouldn't report the uh, beneficial owner because there are different rules for investment companies and trading companies. And for trading companies, it's a partial disclosure for CRS. Now, obviously, Hong Kong's not on the list, so we don't have to consider the, um, the economic substance rules, and Hong Kong is not introducing a beneficial ownership register. With respect to the BVI company that holds the account in Dubai, let's say, in the UAE, uh, there we do have an issue because from the UAE's perspective, they will just look at the BVI company and see that that company doesn't trade. That's just a pure investment company. And there you would have a disclosure under the CRS, notwithstanding the parent company is itself a trading entity. So you would have a disclosure from the UAE to the Thai tax authority by virtue of the BVI company. That BVI company would obviously have to satisfy the economic substance rules. 
It doesn't have to in this case because it doesn't hold any equity interests. And in respect to the beneficial ownership register, again, we would have public accessibility with respect to the Thai tax resident individual. Now, Kachinapat, from the uh, perspective of the, uh, the, the, the Thai individual looking at a offshore trading entity, again, does that make any difference in, with respect to the rules that you mentioned with respect to remitting income from that entity? How would it be taxed uh, from year to year? Okay, uh, similar to uh, first, first slice, uh, as we discussed before, uh, no change in terms of the Thai tax perspective, but but uh, uh, under the current tax law, but for the few uh, uh, future of the uh, CIS law, uh, the Thai uh, cabinet Thai cabinet announced to to have the uh, two tax law uh, in respect of the CIS. The first one is to revise the Thai revenue code, and the second one is to create a new law under the control of the uh, Ministry of Finance. And then uh, the, the Thai government will use uh, two CIS laws in the, uh, I think next year or next two years uh, uh, to see what will happen offshore. And then I, I think uh, if the Thai citizen, they, they are mm -hmm. a, a, a good boy, a, a, a good fed people, <laughs> no, no, no need to concern or worry about it. For example, I have the uh, uh, bank account of, in Singapore, UOB bank account, because I, I, have, I, I am the director of a Singapore company and a BVI company as a professional director. I just disclose. No need to worry about, but but I may I may concern about my uh, uh, private secrecy, and uh, no need to disclose. But you know why? Because uh, I, I have no uh, duty or requirement to disclose. Just a bank, just a bank to disclose, right? But just to be clear, when it comes to the the Hong Kong trading entity, if effectively the Thai individual is the only director. Yep. of that entity. It doesn't make a difference on the tax analysis that oh. effectively that Hong Kong company is managed from, let's say, Bangkok. It, it doesn't make a difference. Is that correct? Uh, for, for this point, uh, it should be con con considered on the uh, PE issue as an agent, as an agent, if the uh, Hong Kong company, but I, I have the uh, 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 conducting point as the director of the Hong Kong company and generate income from Thailand and then uh, derived by the Hong Kong company. This is a PE issue right. under the DTA between uh, Thailand and uh, Hong Kong. Right, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Any broader structuring considerations, uh, Joe, with respect to the trading company that you've seen in practice? Anything that you'd wish to wish to highlight when it comes to this sort of um, configuration with Thai clients? Anything that you're seeing? Um, well, your, your question just now with respect to um, um, Thai, Thai people, Thai residents acting as director of a Hong Kong company, that's, uh, that's spot on. I, I, I very often see that situation where um, Thai people in, in, um, based in uh, Thai residents are making the decisions, the trading decisions for a Hong Kong trading company. Um, even if they uh, trade with themselves, the real question is, um, how is this going to get um, disclosed or discovered by the, um, by the, by the Thai tax uh, authorities? Is anybody has any views on this? At what point in time this, um, becomes a real issue for the Thai residents? Disclosure will come from, uh, well, it will come from the UAE. In the example that we've given, 
it is the account held in the, in, let's say, a Dubai account. It's that account that will end up reporting through to the uh, Thai tax authority, but it won't necessarily contain um, a, a heavy amount of detail with respect to the trading entity. That's the parent of that, that group. So that, there will be a disclosure on this structure. It's just whether or not that will make a difference, given that it's a trading entity rather than an investment company. I don't know if Trinidad, do, do you have any views on that, Trinidad? Uh, I, I don't think uh, uh, under the current tax law, I don't think this is a, a tax impact uh, in Thailand, but after CIS, I'm uh, not sure because uh, uh, just this course and uh, the Thai revenue uh, department may, may raise a question to the tax yeah. uh, taxpayer. Right. Uh, right. Okay, moving on to the next one. This is a trust structure. So we've got a Singapore trust. BVI company, and then we've got uh, a bunch of financial accounts. We've got a depository account in Singapore, an ETF uh, based in uh, Hong Kong, and then an account in the US. Now, the only difference with this structure, the other one is now we've put a trust uh, between the client and the underlying BVI company. So looking at it from a US standpoint, John, we, John we've got this US account held by a BVI, and now we've got a trust. Is there any particular difference? This BVI obviously is an investment company looks like all it does is hold ETFs. No real change here. You know, as we said, Kate, uh, uh, the U.S. not participating in CRS. And so we're not really concerned with the, the CRS elements and aspects of it. Under the reciprocal agreements, as I mentioned, the U.S. has not put in place any equivalent structuring where U.S. trusts uh, would report and or banks would gather that type of trust related information in order for the US based bank to report that data. So, you know, no change to to really what we were looking at earlier with just the company uh, by inserting uh, the trust above it. From an international standpoint, it's really the uh, looking at the Singapore account uh, that would report uh, straight through. Um, and to, to Thailand because of the, uh, the BVI company would not be um, trading, for instance, it would just be an investment company. So you would have a report emanating from Singapore and it would uh, track through um, the, the parties of the trust. So you would end up with a separate being disclosed protected beneficiaries to the extent that they are uh, uh, received distributions. Uh, again, from uh, the international standpoint, the BVI company you would have to see whether or not economic substance rules apply. Generally, they would here. The ETF would be an equity interest. Uh, holding accounts wouldn't negative. So even if you have interest-bearing accounts, that wouldn't negative an economic substance analysis. So the possibility is that this uh, company needs to have staff and premises. If it doesn't, there could be a spontaneous disclosure, again, to Thailand of the controlling persons. Uh, and that, again, would capture the set law at minimum. Uh, from a beneficial ownership register perspective. This is the interesting aspect of this. Because there's a BVI company, it doesn't matter that you have a Singapore trust above it. The BVI company would display on the beneficial ownership register the same parties, regardless of if it was a Singapore trust, Jersey trust, or anywhere else. It will still display the full range of effective beneficial owners, which is the protector, settler, and all the beneficiaries, regardless of the type of trust you've got above it. It's because of the BVI company that you have the beneficial ownership disclosure that will occur publicly available. Tight tax considerations here. So here, uh, in fact, we've got a trust 
Yep. So we've got Thai individuals involved with the trust settle, creating the trust, etc. What Thai tax considerations would there be on creating the trust? And then later on, if any of the if the settle passes away, is there a Thai tax charge? Is there an attributed income charge for anything that the underlying structure generates? Well, how would the Thai tax um, uh, deal with this type of structure? Okay, thanks, Seth. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, Thailand, we have no uh, uh, the trust law. We have only the uh, uh, trust for the capital market, for example, real estate investment trust or REIT. Uh, but you know, the, the draft law of the private trust under the process, but uh, clearly, uh, the SEC will be regulated to be the regulator for the Thai trust. But you know, they they are they they, they are ignored to to be the regulator for 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 the trust in Thailand. And then uh, we don't know the future of uh, the trust law in Thailand in terms of private trust or family trust. But uh, I think from this structure, it is an offshore trust, and then a Thai citizen uh, set up the uh, uh, offshore trust under the trust deed. Uh, it depends on the nature of of trust sack. It depends on the controllable trust or uncontrollable trust. If the central set up the controllable trust, uh, it uh, this is not subject to the gift tax or, or inheritance tax during the setup period. But uh, for uncontrollable, uncontrollable, uh, this is not subject to the gift tax as well uh, in terms of the central. Uh, but you know, uh, we have one case of the client in the Thai stock market. Uh, the SEC raised this question for the uh, the high net worth individuals uh, in case of a controllable trust because uh, they uh, th this guy transfer the, uh, the the high uh, high value of the shares in the Thai stock market to the controllable trust in Singapore, and the Thai SEC count as a part of controllable trust uh, a chance in the trust, and then uh, they 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 uh, they consider as the acting in concert and count as the uh, voting rights. Uh, this uh, is uh, when, when compared with the tax issue. I think the same. I think the same. And uh, I, I think uh, we we just wait and see for tax consequence on this issue. So but, yep. the law reserved a lot of control over the trust. Were we saying that? The, the assets would still form part of his estate for inheritance tax? If it's right, 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 right. I, I, I think so, I think so. But just wait and see for, for the next step of the tax consequence. But I I try to understand that uh, the SEC and the uh, Thai Revenue Department, they work together on this issue. Right, right. right and, that's that's right. a very interesting point. So I guess the takeaway there is if you were creating an offshore trust for a, a high net worth Thai client, right. Right. In terms of the control mechanism. That's right. In terms of beneficiary, in terms of beneficiary, if the beneficiary they receive the uh, return return from the trust, uh, this is uh, subject to the gift tax, gift tax, and go back to the to the uh, Thai personal income tax rule, resident rule, and they can, they can keep the return proceed outside Thailand and uh, bring into the Thailand uh, Thailand next year. Oh, right. Right. Right, but in return tax, if the uh, trust fund uh, terminate or uh, liquidate, <clears throat> this is subject to in return tax as well. Right, right. Yeah. Any comments here, Joe, from a practical standpoint uh, when, um, when encountering trusts with Thai clients? Yeah, maybe just to clarify, Quinchina, uh, but when you mentioned a, um, a controllable, controllable trust or a non-controllable trust, do you mean um, a refocable trust or an irrefocable trust? No, Joe. Uh, really uh, 
uh, right, right, different issue. Yeah. Right. So, um, in in Singapore, uh, a very commonly used uh, feature for Singapore trusts is this so-called um, reserve powers trust. And the way it typically would work is uh, a Thai settler would reserve the investment powers to himself. Then, in practice, the the Thai individual would get a limited power of attorney on the on the bank account. And he could trade, he could give uh, direct instructions to the bank um, bank holding the account, whether it's in Thailand or in, in Singapore. So what you mentioned is there is a clear risk in that case, if you have a settler reserve powers trust and the, the settler is based in Thailand and is still managing the assets. Not, not sure whether in Singapore you have a PTC, right? Private trust company, right? Um, it doesn't even require a PTC in Singapore. We, well, we do have that. Mm-hmm. But he, and any standard uh, trust um, under Singapore law, we can uh, the settler can reserve the investment powers and several other powers to himself, mm-hmm. and that's it's 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 commonly used in Singapore because um, it it also um, reduces the risk for uh, for the trustees. Mm-hmm. So that that's a clear risk if I understand you correctly. Right, right. Uh, from from the SEC uh, perspective, they they concern on the uh, if the so discretion uh, uh, controlled by the uh, trustee is this okay? This is non-controllable, but some controllable. Uh, for example, uh, benefit or return of bank account, as you mentioned earlier, it uh, we regarded as a controllable trust. Okay. Yep. To, to bear in mind, that's pretty yeah. important. Yep. Yeah. This is widely used in Singapore. Thank you. Uh, yep. Yeah. Okay, final example. So looking at a insurance-based structure. So at the top, we have Thai tax resident individual who's a policyholder in the insurance contract. And I've put in European Union-based, so it could be anywhere within it's Luxembourg or, or elsewhere within the union. Now, the beneficiaries of that policy is a trust, and the trust is in Singapore. Underlying that policy is a BVI company, and then that BVI company has a bank account in Singapore. It's part of a private equity fund uh, based in the Cayman Islands, and then also has a bank account in the US. So fairly uh, complex structure, I guess, with, with multiple layers. But the key thing to note here is you have an insurance policy holding effectively an investment portfolio belief it comprising a bbi company and its underlying financial investments so first thing from the u.s standpoint we've got a u.s connection because we've got this account how will the u.s deal with this um john because we've we've got a bbi company it's not trading it's not doing anything other than just holding these investments but it itself the ultimate shareholder is a life company effectively so how, how do we deal with this from the u.s tax perspective yeah so the the simple answer is no look through for that active business like we like we touched on in the earlier example so there is not going to be any um gathering of information at the u.s level in regarding regard in regard to the policy holder so it's a bit of a black box in that regards the u.s is not going to have any information now one thing i will mention that's not directly connected to this example but because the example mentions it i think it's important to note this um 
the U.S. does have a very specific definition of life insurance, and it doesn't always match up with the offshore use or definition uh, of life insurance. So if in anywhere in this example, we had U.S. beneficiaries, so if there were U.S. beneficiaries of the trust that's getting the payout, you know, we'd want to look at does the policy meet the U.S. definition? And then that's going to be a knock-on effect to the the treatment from a tax perspective, capital versus um, uh, income treatment. But just yeah. with the example you've given, there is no U.S. complication. Uh, same as we talked about before, income will be U.S. sourced, but that'll be most likely handled through um, withholding. Uh, by introducing the life insurance company, it's possible that the company is headquartered in a jurisdiction that has a treaty with the U.S. that reduces that withholding from 30% to a lower number, sometimes as low as 15%. So you might have less withholding and less tax uh, liability, but the process itself is going to be the same. And there is not going to be any information collected on the ultimate owner of the policy. Right, right. Okay, I guess from the, uh, let's just scroll on, from the international perspective, we've got this uh, BVI company, LZ's underlying um, accounts. From a Singapore perspective, it, it, from uh, CRS, applying to CRS, uh, we, we wouldn't be able to look through this structure to the policyholder. Uh, the CRS doesn't capture policyholders. Instead, what it will be looking for, in this case, is effectively the controlling persons of the life company. Now, the life company is no doubt going to be a listed entity, in which case that's the end of the inquiry from a CRS perspective. Now, switching to the looking at economic substance, looking underneath this, yes, we've got uh, pure equity there. but. Even if we have an economic, an economic substance failure, again, they're looking for the beneficial owners of the life company. So again, we wouldn't have a reporting outcome for the policy holder. From a beneficial ownership register perspective, again, it's the life company, not the policy holder, so they wouldn't <coughs> have any reporting. So insofar as the, 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 the reporting trail here, there's almost nothing going on that will highlight the policy holder, except for one aspect, which is the the, the life company itself is captured by the CRS and that would need to report the, the policyholders' interest in the policy. So what wouldn't be disclosed is all of the underlying uh, financial investments that comprise what would be the cash value of this. But that would be a report made from the relevant European Union country in which the life policy is um, situated or the life company situated to the Thai tax authority. But that would be the only disclosure that occurs. Insofar as the trust is concerned, that would not be disclosed by the European Union life company. The only way in which that would be disclosable is if they were effectively an insurable event. Um, and until that occurs, then that wouldn't be subject to disclosure. So of all the structures, this is the one that uh, reveals the least amount of reporting footprint from the financial, the international financial surveillance perspective. Now, looking at it from a Thai tax consideration, We've got this life, uh, well, we've got this um, uh, sort of uh, insurance policy. Um, it's uh, obviously an insurance policy that's related to investments. So it's not a, a term life in policy. Is there any coverage here with respect to creating the policy by transferring the shares of a BVI company as a subscription? Is there going to likely be any Thai inheritance tax exposure in creating the policy or is there a tie inheritance tax exposure when the policy pays out? How, how would it work from a tie perspective when you have these forms of um, sophisticated policies? 
Okay, Zach, uh, we, we can discuss into uh, perspectives. The first one is the uh, uh, Thai personal income tax. Uh, the insurance proceeds uh, uh, from from the uh, uh, policy uh, to the beneficiary. This is a uh, exempt from the Thai personal income tax. Uh, uh, and uh, the second uh, tax perspective, inheritance tax. Uh, insurance proceed not subject to inheritance tax because uh, the the proceeds uh, come after the debt, right? And then in, in, in this in this, in this scenario, uh, we have only one concern is the uh, uh, in terms of the insurance policy that no beneficiary mentioned or specified under the policy, because the recent case of the Supreme Court in Thailand ruled that uh, when the insurance policy without the beneficiary, the insurance proceed will go to the uh, estate and subject to inheritance tax, right? Right. right. That's right. That's right. And, and then we need to to have a trust of view drafting to cover the insurance proceed. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. I guess looking, Roger, from your perspective, you've you've got extensive experience of these forms of, of uh, complex structures. What what would you say in a, in a broader context on how these are put together, and uh, particularly from the uh, overseas market perspective? Yeah, thanks, Zach. So, you know, as you guys all mentioned, um, you know, by using an insurance structure um, to hold all your different assets, there's a few advantages, right? So number one, there's a consolidated reporting. So in, in your case, the Singapore company, the BVI, the, the US real estate are held by the, the, the BVI, all be consolidated into one single line. So all you report back is the cash surrendered by life insurance policy. Everything else below that gets consolidated into just one single line. Um, as Kunchinapat had mentioned, um, there's no inheritance tax proceeds um, on, on the offshore bank accounts, um, which is, I think, in the, all the previous examples, if you have an offshore account um, in Singapore or Hong Kong held by BVI or held individually, that would be subject to the 5%. Um, and as, as also John pointed out, is you know, we can also use this extensive network of different treaties. Um, uh, so, so in terms of finding a, a, a proper jurisdiction. So, so for example, you know, if we used a, a jurisdiction such as Austria or Ireland or Barbados, which has a very good double tax treaty with the U.S., all of a sudden the withholding taxes can be reduced from 30% down to 15%. Um, so, so sometimes with you know the savings of the inheritance, high inheritance tax of the 5% or 10% if it's non-direct, um, and the withholding taxes sometimes by you know putting this extra layer of an insurance, um, it actually makes it a, a more effective way to for for tie to hold um, your different assets. And I think the one other thing that we do see that's also advantageous is that the avoidance of probate. So I think the Thai families today, you know, oftentimes have assets in, in different jurisdictions. They may have assets in the UK and Thailand, Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia. Um, and obviously if the uh, insured person passes away, the first generation passes away, um, the family has to go to probate in each of these different jurisdictions. And that oftentimes can take quite a bit of time and money. Um, it's a, it's a co quite complicated process. Um, and so, by structuring via insurance, you know the, the distributions are very quick and very easy. Voids probate and distributions are in thirty days or less. So I think it's it's a it's a newer concept for the ties, but I think what we do see is a lot more ties are are looking at this structure as a as a as a newer way um, to to structure the different assets, especially with the CRS reporting that's coming in. And they like the fact that it's consolidated reporting. Is it the case, Roger, that that all policies can can you can subscribe in kind? Because in this case. 
presumably the, the Thai individual has subscribed for a policy using his BDI company shares. Is that the, is that the same with every policy or how, how does it work? Yes, correct. So what you can do is, you know, you can contribute um, assets in kind. So in this case, you would just take the BVI shares or the bank account, and you can use that as the basis of a premium. So just contribute that in. You won't have to sell or restructure anything. You just contribute that in. Um, we also have cases where ties have already set up trusts and they have maybe offshore companies that they've that they held. So trust holding a BVI holding um, bank account or an onshore company. All you can simply do is just take the, the, the shares of the of the BVI company and just put it in as premium. So it's very way to, to, to do the structure. Joe, any comments on this structure and, and some of the more topical things going on, let's say in the yeah. Singapore market? Just one question there, but um, if the policy holder is also um, either a director or, um, or yes, a, a limited power of attorney on the accounts that are under the BVI company, which is under the policy, would that um, affect the integrity of this structure somehow? No, no, there's no, no issue whatsoever. So, um, you know, I think, uh, especially in Asia, you know, especially as, and especially in Thailand, um, you know, obviously in Thailand, there's no CFC rules. Um, so, all, so you can have full power, full limited power attorney back to the individual um, in terms of voting rights, in terms of the control of the different assets. So, so no issues whatsoever. But okay. looking at it from the uh, sort of beneficial ownership perspective, you need to be careful how much power they're given that might cause them to be a person with sort of significant control. So, you, but the rules are different in, in different jurisdictions. So you need to mm -hmm. consider, you know, how they're applying and how they're developing. But um, yeah, from that perspective, there wouldn't be an issue. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a very good point. And that's something that, you know, we can definitely advise on. And then one of the issues that John had brought up, which was obviously if we have a U.S. person, um, the simple way to, to, to structure that is that we have several U.S. compliant carriers. So the U.S. compliant carriers, you know, these are either onshore carriers or an offshore carrier with a 953D exemption. Um, they're considered a U.S. carrier. It's a U.S. policy. Um, so it, it's be fully structured so that so that it's compliant for both an international context and a U.S. context, all all in the same box. So there's no issues there. So you could really help um, Thai families who have um, beneficiaries, children who are living in the U.S., which happens in a lot of cases, right? Correct, correct. So I think it's, you know, oftentimes what we can do is, you know, in those cases, we oftentimes do see a form grantor trust that's in place, you know, for the U.S. beneficiaries. Um, I think there's there's two issues that sort of come up with that, <coughs> is that while the first generation is involved, obviously there's a CR supporting, there may be some kind of inheritance tax issues. Um, the PPLI can solve for that, or the insurance policy can solve for that. But also when the first generation passes away and becomes a form non-grantor trust, um, usually the assets, you know, they may be faced with some uh, UNI, DNI issues, undistributed net income, distributed net income. What, 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 so colloquial, a lot of the tax attorneys call the throwback rule issues. So these are very sort of very punitive uh, tax concerns, um, if not structured properly. But if you have a PPL underneath it, um, the PPL can act as sort of uh, an accumulator as a blocker. So, so even if it goes to the second generation, um, you have the PPL that still holds the, holds the assets. So sometimes it's, it's actually more effective using a form granted trust with a PPLI. That can be um, structured. 
Yeah, absolutely. I want to echo that. That's a nice circle back to the, the final concept I mentioned in my presentation that the U.S. has an anti-deferral approach. The, the, the large exception to that is a U.S. compliant life insurance policy. Life insurance under the U.S. system is a legitimate way of deferring uh, income tax exposure. So uh, Roger's absolutely correct. If you've got a situation with a foreign grantor trust and the grantor passes away, but either because of age or capacity or spendthrift provisions, you're not ready to flush income out on an annual basis to the beneficiaries, PPLI can be an excellent way of avoiding those throwback rules that, that Roger mentioned. Very good, okay. Well, I think we'll move on from this and just look at uh, the sort of questions that we've, we've had. I think, John, you've been answering some of these anyway during the meantime. Um, I'm not sure if we've had any left after all of that. Okay. No, I think you've answered all of the questions. Well, can I, could, could I just in person, I'd like to just touch on them real quickly, just in case people didn't read the chat and maybe just to give a little bit more depth. The two questions that came up that I answered in the chat, one was about the portfolio interest exemption. As we touched on in the examples, there's a withholding regime where U.S. sourced income is handled by the, the bank or the financial institution. So the ultimate taxpayer offshore never really has to file anything or really see the tax. There's a notable exception to that. That's the the portfolio interest exception, where it's relieved of that 30% standard withholding obligation. So it's a, a tax advantaged way to invest. There's very particular rules about the type of portfolio interest, the debt, uh, think of it in terms of like bond investments rather than stocks or securities. But there are very particular rules uh, about that. Um, Typically, if you're dealing with a, a, a securities online brokerage or a trading perspective, then that's going to be professionally handled if you're trading in the marketplace. But if you're doing any type of family uh, transactions where you've got complex family structuring and investments in the U.S., you want to be very careful um, about making sure that it meets the specific definitions uh, uh, in order to meet the portfolio interest exemption. Non-transferable is a big part of that, typically, if it's not through an online exchange. But then the question that was raised in the chat is a good one, which is individuals can hold that and benefit it from it. Could a corporate entity benefit from it? And the, the short answer is yes, it can. But you want to be careful because corporate entities, unlike individuals, there are 10% shareholder restrictions. So again, if you're in an intra-family situation and you've got a foreign company with a U.S. subsidiary and you're setting up loans to get around withholding from that U.S. sourced income, probably not going to work because if you're interconnected in any way, you, you're, that company's not going to be able to. But in true third-party transactions where the corporate entity is holding a note from a U.S. Uh, issuer and has no ownership connection to the U.S. issuer, they can qualify for that um, portfolio interest that eliminates the U.S. withholding and the U.S. tax liability. The other question was concerning this U.S. estate tax liability, and, and most people are shocked when I talk about non-U.S. persons having an exposure when they're holding those, but the second question that always comes up, and it came up in the chat today, is how in the world is the U.S. ever going to enforce this? Is this really going to happen? And, you know, like I mentioned, the days of the U.S. not being involved internationally and demanding information are over, so they're being very aggressive in going after banks. The hook is typically the QI or the Qualified Intermediary Agreement that all the banks are signing that allows them to serve as a broker for U.S. securities and, and hold them and trade them and uh, 
all that. They're signing up to the withholding regime. And then that's a hook where they've signed an agreement for tax liabilities. The IRS can go in and say, oh, there's an estate tax exposure. You've also got to withhold on that or help us get that before you release the fund. So that's the hook. The other thing is just straight transferee liability. So if you've got a foreign trust that holds the assets on behalf of beneficiaries and is not a blocker, um, the, the trustee, before it's making distributions, needs to be careful that tax liabilities are handled and get a tax declaration signed by the recipient because the IRS can go after the, the big money fat pocket trust company rather than the individual and say, look, you had this money, you let it go, you should have known that there was a tax liability before you released it. So transfer liability can be enforced in local uh, courts and local jurisdictions. Great. Okay, well, look, uh, we're just coming up on two hours. I think we'll we'll, we'll bring it to a halt at this stage. <laughs> um, you will circulate copies of the slides as well as the, um, the recording. Uh